I heard somebody just say, oh, did I miss it? It was in July. <clears throat> Evidently, I saved mine for a long time. I actually had a stack of birthday cards and Father's Day cards on my desk at home. And when I got home from vacation, I pulled them out and I read them all. Hey, that'll encourage you. And um, But this one was of particular note. This comes from a girl named Tina. And I'll leave it at that. I told her I would not embarrass her in public. Um, although I think she should be very proud of this. Because this is a letter to you, not just to me. This is a birthday card. The reason she sent it to me is that she and I share the same birthday. So every year we think of each other. Do you have people like that you think of? I know another guy here in town that's a contractor that we're born on the same day. And I know that he likes black olives. So on his birthday, I try to get a can and get them over to him. <laughs> but you think of those people. <clears throat> Share the same day. May God's brightest blessings bring a world of happiness to you. I had not heard from her for quite some time. Then she included this letter. Pastor Jeff, I've been meaning to write this letter of thanks for a long time now. I'm sorry I didn't do it sooner. When I was younger, I was pretty rough around the edges. But inside, I really wanted a deeper relationship with God. I felt very alone and misunderstood. The first church I remember feeling accepted and at home was the Christian Center. I loved going to youth group and wanted so much to carry the fire I felt on Thursday nights with me through the rest of the week. Even though I usually didn't because of different reasons, the Lord used you, your girls, and others in the church to plant seeds that he continued to water. I learned a lot at your church, and it was even the first church I felt God at. Jessica and Janina encouraged me a lot and never made me feel looked down on. That was huge for me. I actually received my first prophetic word there, though at the time I didn't really understand what prophecy was. It was Linda Stangle who spoke it over me, and she said, God has a plan for you that is so big that if he told you right now what it was, you'd never believe it. That word opened doors in my heart of hope, excitement, joy, and the very beginning of understanding what it truly means to be a beloved child of God. Now I know part of that big plan. I'm called to work with abused, troubled, and orphaned children and teens. I've had a vision of a ranch used as a retreat for soon-to-be-adopted children to meet their new families. Uh, They'll be able to bond, get prayer and counseling on neutral ground before beginning their new lives with their new families. I most definitely would not have believed that when I was 15. Even though I don't know how or when God will do this, I'm so excited about it. And that's only one of the things I've been shown that I will be part of. Now I live in Missouri. Unless you live there, then it's Missouri. (coughs) Right by the Lake of the Ozarks with my wonderful husband and our two sons, Caleb, who's two, and Colin, who just turned one. I go to a great church, which is very missions-minded. I'm still very much a work in progress, but I love the Lord with all my heart and I'm finally coming to grips with knowing I am who he made me and I'm exactly where I'm meant to be. I suppose the main thing I really want you to know is that if it weren't for you, your family and your church, I wouldn't be who I am today. Sorry. (laughs) I read this last night, but I didn't cry last night. Thank you for your love, patience, and kindness. I've never forgotten the foundation I got from your church. Thank you for being so good to me when I was confused and impressionable 
and for being all that you were to my brother, too. I pray God blesses you and your family abundantly. I don't have the words to say how very, very much you all blessed me. Have a great birthday. And uh, this letter is to you, you see. When I look around and I see these pictures of lighthouses, we're known as a lighthouse on the mountain. It's something that God spoke to us and about us years and years ago. And we're just trying to live up to it. And I have some favorites. Do you have favorite lighthouses? You know, I'm the guy that you bring them all to. I have all of your lighthouses. Thank you. You always bring me gifts and calendars and little crystal things. And my goodness, i got more calendars or lighthouses than anybody I know. But I like these. <clears throat> and the one in the middle there. That one back there is a little scary. <laughs> and of course, the one on the back wall, these are just a few. The one on the back wall my mom painted. Uh, but the reason I like these is because they have houses connected to them. People live there. We live at the lighthouse. A lot of us, this is our home. This is our church. This is our lighthouse. We call to be a lighthouse on the mountain. This is the result of being a lighthouse on the mountain. People who don't have direction. They don't understand the purpose for their life. And in a sense, the picture of being lost in the tossed sea. And then they see that light coming through. the, And they go, hey, there's hope. Uh, there's a beacon here. There's, I can have direction now. I can get my bearings in life. And that's what lighthouses were all about. They're, they're really not much for functioning anymore. Only a few function for their actual use anymore because of all the GPS and things like that. Now we're just trying to save them. That's historical things for our nation. But there was a time in our nation where they played such a role, and they still do all around the world, to give people direction and purpose. But not many people have the privilege of living in one. I'm not sure I'd want to live in that one back there. Uh, I mean, that one's in the middle of the ocean. And if you get a chance, if you haven't seen that up close, go look up close. There's a guy standing in the front door. And there are legend, legends about what happened to him. You know, he was swept away and killed. But that one's in France. And uh, But there are living quarters in that one. And there are other ones uh, where they have to take you out by helicopter and they shift change and things like that and pull these drawers out and you sleep in a drawer and I thought, well, I like these. I like these ones with the houses on them. <laughs> you know, a little garden outside, maybe a few animals or something. But, but the idea is that we live together in the lighthouse and others may come and go. But, but later on, they send the mail back and say, listen, if you hadn't been there, my life wouldn't be the same. And I'm grateful for items like this. I'm going to send this home with Joe Stangle for Linda. So I don't think she's gotten a chance to see this. Shame on me for hoarding it since July, <clears throat> but there we go. I wanted to encourage you with that this morning. Sorry I cried on you. Hope you didn't go too far with me. But unless we're going to have another thing up here, I could sure use some more light. Our message this morning is called Taking My Temperature. Now, I learned some things last night about taking temperatures. I'm an old school guy. I still have the glass one with probably the illegal mercury inside or whatever, you know. You got to shake it down and don't do it with slippery hands because you can lose it in a hurry. Then you shake that down and you stick it under your tongue right there and, and you wait two minutes, right? And uh, it, it comes up and you look for something. What are you looking for? There's that little mark in there at 98.6. And you're looking for it to be there. Nowadays, they just stick the thing in your ear and go click. 
Or uh, as the young mothers were telling me last night, she, I said, how do you know when you're okay? And they said, because it goes beep, beep, beep. <laughs> I didn't know we had those kind. <laughs> Taking my temperature. And uh, you still got to get it, the soft membrane or the place. And we all know there's a mark that we're looking for that says we're normal. We finally found the device we've always wanted, the one that tells us whether or not we're normal. And speaking of normal, there's a, there's a town just northeast of Springfield, Illinois, called Bloomington, and the little suburb is called Normal. I, said, I told Vegas, we're going to drive up there just so we can say we've been someplace normal. And, uh, taking my temperature, Revelation chapter 3. And I invite you to listen while I, I really sincerely believe this. It's not a hype or a, you know, a ta-da kind of moment. I, I really believe I want to preach to myself this morning and you can listen in. I really believe that the Holy Spirit wants to break this as a revelation to me. And that <clears throat> as a pastor or a leader of a congregation, then we would assume that perhaps you may want to break it to others as well. The husbandman becomes first partaker of the fruit. Uh, the church doesn't grow any uh, bigger or larger spiritually than the leadership in a church. And uh, so we need to hear it first. So, Father, I invite you now by your Holy Spirit to break revelation into my heart even as I speak. I need to hear this message. I remember what Rob was preaching while I was gone that sometimes we just need to want the want to. And this morning I want to have the desire to hear from you, receive from you the bread of life. A revelation that will become life-changing for me and for others. I ask it sincerely in Jesus' name. We know in Revelation that Jesus is talking to the seven churches. We come to verse 14 of chapter 3. It says, To the angel of the church, of the Laodiceans write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyes have, that you may see. As many as I love, this is such an important statement made by the Son of God. In the midst of this, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten or discipline. Therefore, be zealous, eager, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, 
as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Neither hot nor cold. One of the things that Peggy and I did uh, toward the end of our vacation, which is available to you if you've not been there, there's an, uh, some kind of a preserve down here in the North Palm Desert area where there's an actual oasis that's been preserved. And you walk in, and it's this huge clump of uh, palm trees that haven't been manicured in any way. They're just overgrown. And, but it's you can be out, outside in the parking lot at like 100 degrees and walk into this coolness inside. And it's out there in the middle. You can off of Washington and Ramon out there in Palm Desert. And uh, there's, there's streams that come up out of the ground, and you can tell it's all watered in there, and it's very refreshing. And uh, the only problem is it sits right on top of the San Andreas Fault, so you want to be careful of that piece. But uh, somebody's built a little cabin in there, and now it's a preserve, and you can go in there. People will tell you the history and all that. But, you know, in that moment, if you were one of those pioneers or riding your horse across the desert and you could find an oasis, you were glad for the cool springs. It was refreshing. What's another thing they do out there in the desert? Well, they're all into that hot tub stuff, aren't they? Mineral baths and that, but the hot mineral baths, you know, promote healing and things like that. But you need cold or hot, but not lukewarm. We're not generally looking for something that's lukewarm. Jesus, if you'll allow me to interpret this for the moment, says lukewarm is nauseating. It makes me throw up. Their lukewarmness was evidenced in this passage and in this church by being content with their material wealth and at the same time being unaware of their spiritual poverty. Jesus used some pretty strong words here to describe them, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. And in their pride and their arrogance, They didn't realize that God's methods for evaluating things were different than theirs. You know, if somebody's rich and they stand up and say, I'm rich, isn't that pride? You can be rich, you can be wealthy, but you don't have to go around telling everybody about it, right? You can be modest about it, you can own lots of things and be wealthy, and there's nothing wrong with that until you begin to use it as a source of pride. Pride is the original sin. It's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. You know, I'm greater than God. I'll put my throne above his. I'll do all these things and be better than God. And it cost him everything. And so pride, uh, even in fact, this commentary, there's a commentary attached in this Bible, says the greatest sin is pride. Here's a church. He's talking to the church. And the church was saying, we're rich. We've become wealthy. And we don't need anything. That's pride and arrogance in the face of God. In verse 17, he starts by saying, because you say this, then verse 18, tie it together quickly, I counsel you how gracious God is that even when we're filled with pride, even when our arrogance pushes against who he is and the person that he is to us, He still, by His grace, reaches across that barrier that we've put in place and says, look, you're in trouble and I'm still going to counsel you to get better. 
You're, you're living out there on the edge in the danger zone, and I'm still going to merge across that to reach you. We often said uh, about somebody that comes to know Christ uh, right at the onset of their faith in him and their salvation, forgiveness of their sins, and you talk to them and say, oh, I found Jesus. And, of course, we like to say, well, Jesus wasn't lost. <laughs> you were lost. <laughs> he found you. Right? And this is his grace manifested to us over the years in the church and every generation that he has reached across whatever the issues were of the generation to reach people and draw them to himself. He was always, as we sang this morning, lifting up his son because his son said, if I be lifted up from the earth, originally impaled on the cross, lifted up from the earth. But as we lift him up in every generation, men are drawn, women are drawn, children are drawn to him and they find salvation. And so even in their pride and their arrogance, the grace of God reaches across and says, I'm going to counsel you something. I want to help you. Because in this moment, you are using an evaluation system that is very different than mine. Excuse me. <laughs> That's such an annoying sound. <laughs> Am I going to live? Am I going to be okay? All right. It's a good thing this thing doesn't run on 110. You know, nine volts would be enough. <laughs> but 110 could be pretty exciting. God says you're evaluating yourself and your and your your position with me by your standard of living. Anybody here ever traveled to third world countries? And while there met Christians or even been invited into their homes? I remember being invited into a church in Mexico. Uh, we were all gonna it took it was gonna take hours to get to it, and they said they're gonna put on a feast for you. We said, Really? That's always exciting, you know. And uh, what will we have? And, and then they actually reached somebody at the church and asked them what was going to happen. They said, well, uh, it's kind of changed. It's a real poor church. Uh, matter of fact, we had to have our services there before the sun went down because after that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face or any lights for miles out in the middle of nowhere in this little village. And uh, they said, well, all they can do is boil coffee and they've got some tortillas. And they said, but, you know, that's what they have. Victor, I think you were, we were together on that. And we, you know, said, well, hey, we got some extra bucks. You know, if we sent some extra bucks, could somebody get some beans and some rice and stuff? Like yeah, let's. so we threw a party for them. And it was a great time visiting the church. But those people had such a deep love for Jesus that it made our, all of our wealthiness look like poverty. We were rich in the world's goods, but we didn't have this deep, sincere hanging on to Jesus kind of love that was demonstrated by some of those people who had, in our estimation, nothing much. Hmm? You following me? The understanding that often we, as the church here in Laodicea, was using an evaluation system that says, I'm rich, I don't need a thing, I'm wealthy, I'm good. And we push God out. And those that have nothing in this life are saying, I've got the greatest riches of all. I've got Jesus and I've got heaven. I've got forgiveness and I live under the grace of God and I live day to day, minute to minute, moment to moment for my provision. But he always takes care of me. So he says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. White garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now, this is something I was not aware of 
I wouldn't stand up here and say, gee, I knew this all the time. I didn't. I read this recently, and I want to share it with you. Laodicea was noted for being a banking center and for the production of glossy black wool used in clothing and carpets and for producing a salve for the curing of eye disorders. This is what Laodicea was known for. They were a banking center. They trusted in gold. They were a, uh, a, a cloth manufacturing center with this special glossy black wool that made carpets and clothing that made them famous for those things. You know how you go places where they have a particular thing they do and you go because that's what you want to see. And they really had these medical centers. They've actually, they know where they were and, and how they operated, that they had developed systems of healing the current problematic day uh, of the day, eye problems of the Middle East, and this salve would actually heal them. So we're known for that. It's kind of like Loma Linda. You can say Loma Linda. Even people in the Midwest know what Loma Linda is. They have no idea it's the name of a city. They just know it's a medical center. And then if you're going to have a problem, it would be a nice place to be. And so Laodicea was known for being the banking center and having this material, that, that, this black cloth and the ISAV. And listen to how Jesus comes right into a cultural moment and says, I know what you're trusting in. You're trusting in your banking center. You're trusting in your riches. You're trusting in your gold. You're trusting in your manufacturing processes. And you're, you're, uh, you're prideful about your black wool. And you've got this wonderful healing department where you take care of the eye problems. But I'm telling you, you need to buy from me gold tried in the fire. You need true spirituality. You don't need the phony stuff. You need something that's pure and been refined and reflects true spirituality. And while you're trusting in that black wool, I'm telling you, you need to buy for me white garments. And we know through scriptures that the white garments is the application of the righteousness of God. It means that He has given to you your right standing from Him. You didn't earn it. You couldn't make it happen. You couldn't produce enough black wool to make him happy with you. He offered to you the righteousness of Christ. Jesus died, took your sins, and his righteousness, the Bible says, is imputed to you. In other words, is given to you. And when you stand now before Father God, he doesn't see you as a sinful person. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. I counsel you by the white garments, not the black ones. And while you have this great ISAV in your cultural moment and you're famous for healing people, I'm telling you, you need an anointing on your eyes. That's from me. Then you'll truly be able to see. Not only will your eyes be able to see, but your heart will be able to see as well. I wonder if Jesus was writing a letter to the church of Big Bear, how he might write it today. I don't presume to know, because we sit, we live here on this little mountain island, and uh, we don't have manufacturing that we're proud of. We, you know, we're all about tourism and temporal stuff and coming and going, and, and uh, you know, if they don't come, we don't make any money, <laughs> right? We need people to come here and visit us and do things, and we don't depend upon ourselves too heavily. And because we're involved globally, you can be here in Big Bear and do almost anything in the world, can't you? I mean, you could 
You can be involved in businesses all around the world right now from your home right here in our town. But what would Jesus say to us? I don't know if he would pick on a cultural moment or if he would, if he would focus on us, uh, something we do or tourism perhaps. And what he would do in comparison to these writings is he would ask us to look at what we're trusting in. Where's your trust? Where's your hope? What are you leaning on? Where, you know, when you lean on something, we often get the one stand here, the music stand, and I put my Bible on and it sinks under the weight. It's kind of a joke around here because we never know which one it is. <clears throat> we fixed them a couple times. But that little music stand, when we put, we can't lean on that one because it's not trustworthy for holding our weight. Right? But Jesus would write to us even at the church of Big Bear and says, I love you and I care about you and I want to reach across the things that separate us. But I do have this against you. You're, where's your trust ultimately being placed? What are you leaning on? This little message is a searching and a penetrating message for me. The, the, the result is this exhortation where he says, So be earnest, be eager, and repent. I listened to Rob's messages. How many of you were here when Rob preached the last couple of weeks? And, and I listened to the recordings and really appreciated that he was focusing towards revival. And revival not being an event, but being a state uh, of person. Uh, life coming back to life inside of us, a spiritual revival inside of us, and that he was calling us to that place. And and he spoke about the issue of repentance and how that it wasn't just this traditional definition that repentance means to turn around and go the other way. And we often use that as an illustration. If I'm driving down the, the 210 freeway going, going west and I repent, then I'll get off and go east. I'll go turn around and go the other way. And repentance isn't just a change of direction because I decided I wasn't going to do something anymore. It actually becomes this Greek metanoia, change of mind, where I begin to think differently. I begin to actually agree with God. Repentance, in its truest sense, I believe, from the scriptures, means this, agree with God. Okay, so I'm using an evaluation system at Laodicea that's based on wealth and personal good and, and uh, industry and healing and medical stuff. And God comes along and says, I have a different stick. I use a different thermometer. And you're below good temperature here. Your temperature is low. You're, you're not hot. You're not cold. You're lukewarm. You don't make it on either end of the stick. And my evaluation tools say you're in trouble. And I... And he points at us perhaps or he indicates, however it wouldn't be so offensive to you, but he captures the heart and says your, your evaluations are wrong. You're in trouble and you don't realize it. Repentance says, oh, I agree with God about me. How often have you been convicted and I've been convicted, the Holy Spirit comes and says, hey, that, that shouldn't be in your life and you want to argue with him. Come on, we do it. Wait a second. It's not that bad. I mean, have you seen so-and-so? I mean, compared to, compared to them, see, and here's our evaluation tool. Compared to them, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I've got to go talk to them. And if we could hear God, he'd be saying, I already am. Okay, I know what I'm doing. I'm talking to them too, but right now I'm talking to you. And I'm talking to them all at the same time, but I'm talking to you, and you want to argue with me. See, that's pride and arrogance. I know more than God. I can, do, I can argue with him and win. Ha! What's that? But a, a repentant heart is demonstrated by David, 
King David when Nathan the prophet came and he had murdered uh, Uriah and stolen Bathsheba and had adultery going on and, and the prophet tells the story and then David says, we'll get that guy and then the finger of the prophet's pointed at him and says, you're the man. And what does David do? He goes, oh, I've sinned against God. He agreed with God. And that agreement is repentance. Sometimes we have this picture in our mind, what does repentance look like? I, I have it. You know, I see persons you know, running down the aisle or falling on their face, crying profusely, oh God, and repenting. You know, there's this activity that involves the whole person physically and the emotions and the mind. Everything's connected. And it's all about surrendering at the foot of the cross or in front of Jesus. I think those are the outworkings of repentance. Those are not repentance. You can repent without those things happening. But that's the profuseness that can come along with the mind that has changed and said, I agree with God. I agree. You said, I'm this way. And I'm going to say, you're right. Now what do we do about it? Because at that moment, he'll extend his grace and his mercies that the Bible tells us are new every morning. And give us the ability to make the rest of the changes necessary. We cannot overcome sin by ourselves. Come on, we can wrestle them to the ground. And we can hold them there. But while we're holding them, pinning those things to the ground that are offensive to God, we better be yelling for the Holy Ghost to come and smash them. Because I I, I know if I in my weakness I'm going to get tired. And I'm going to let up and that thing's going to be right back up again. Am I talking the truth here this morning? I've wrestled so many sins to the ground, they got up and beat me up again. The idea is i got to get them on the ground, sit on top of them, and start screaming out the Holy Ghost power, God, come and crush this thing. Then I'll be free from it, once and for all. I know you have stories, and I do too, about those things that we said, God, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've failed, I've failed, I've failed. Would you come now and win the victory in me? And by the grace and mercies of Jesus and the blood of Jesus shed for me, the next day it was gone. Woke up, no more desire. Woke up, no more intention. Just out of my life. Almost surprised that it was so easy for God and so hard for me. Jesus said, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. I chasten them. Hebrews chapter 12 uh, resounds from Proverbs chapter 3. I'm going to open both of those and read them. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. This writer continues, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. 
Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, God, chastens for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening or no discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for the, to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Discipline. Jesus says, as many as I love, in Revelation 3.19, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Begin to work in agreement with me. Begin to walk in agreement with me. When I put my finger on something in your life and say that can't continue, quickly agree with me. And then together by my power, we'll overcome it. And you'll be free of it. I need this message today. And I thank you for listening in. Because I am wanting this more and more in my life. Verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. This next part, we we have to remind ourselves, Jesus is talking to who? The The church. He's talking to the church. We use this verse often in meetings to let people know that Jesus is standing outside the door knocking and you have to open the door of your heart and let him in. And we, we've kind of leaned it over to that point to where we've used it so constantly about bringing people to Jesus that we've lost our focus that this is written to the church. <clears throat> I stand at the door and knock is addressed to a complacent church. I, I didn't realize I knew something a lot of people didn't, but how many of you use Microsoft Word? Did you know that if you put your cursor over a word... And then shift F7, it'll bring up a thesaurus. Oh, good. Most people last night didn't know that. I, 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 felt, I felt immediately intelligent. <laughs> or at least overly informed. And I thought, I, I was writing this out, and I said, complacent. Do we really know complacent? Well, we kind of have a feel for it, but I thought, yeah, shift F7. Give me some thesaurus on this. Satisfied. Self-righteous. Smug. Contented, self-sufficient, self-righteous. I stand at the door and knock is addressed to this complacent church. But individuals can still open the door and have intimate fellowship with Jesus. He waits for the door to be opened. Now, you've probably seen it, and I didn't research who painted the painting, but you've seen the painting of the big oak door. I'll call it oak. It's wood. The big straps across it, holding it together, and it's got the rounded top of the brick house, and and the ivy's growing down the right-hand side there. Jesus is leaning in at the door, and this is a depiction of Jesus at the door knocking. And what is the significance of that painting? Exactly. We all understand there's no door handle on the door. It's been left off. And the assumption is that the door handle is on the inside. And this is a depiction of Revelation 3.20. Jesus standing at the door waiting for us to open the door. 
It's his appeal to those who are listening. If you hear me, will you open? His promise is that if we will open, he will come in and dine with us. I shared this story last night and I so enjoyed it. I'm going to give it to you too. That uh, You know Edwards Mansion down in Redlands? You ever heard of Edwards down near the, the, the museum? Or the, the, uh, it's not the museum, is it? What's it? Wedding chapel. Yeah, it's a wedding chapel down at Edwards Mansion. But when it first started, it was a really highbrow restaurant. Yeah. Everything was orange. It was right in the middle of the orange groves. And so the butter was orange and the rolls were orange and everything was orange. <laughs> and it was pricey. Anybody ever eat there? You know, we, <laughs> and you'll relate to this. But it, it's just a big mansion, but they made it into a restaurant. So if you went in and took a table, you might be over on the left edge of the, of the actual dining room with other couples and people eating around the same room. And somebody's over in the bedroom eating in the hallways. And there are tables everywhere. And, but it was way expensive. It's like three times out of our range. And uh, Peggy and I went there with a couple named Andy and Terry. <clears throat> and we walked in and we were just totally intimidated, right? Because I wasn't dressed like this. I was just regular Big Bear. Right? You know, black and white and big bears, your black jeans and your white t shirt. And uh, so, anyway, we walked in kind of the country bumpkins. You know, we're in the big city for a night. <clears throat> we walk in, and, and they got more forks and spoons and knives, and you don't know what to do with. And you're being escorted in, and it's all very proper, and people are, you know, other people look like they know what to do with those forks. And so, we were just intimidated. And we're thinking, boy, you know, should we order that or not? Can we afford this place? We can't afford this. We shouldn't even be here. We're out of our element, you know, nervous. And sit down and, should I touch anything or not? And so, quiet and reserved. But by the end of dinner, man, we were tearing the rolls apart and eating with our hands. And we didn't care how many forks there were. Andy's got his chair tipped back on two legs and so do I. And we're telling jokes back and forth across the table so loud. The other people at the other tables are laughing at our jokes. <laughs> they were just like, we're at home now. You know, we're done eating. Have you noticed? You know, the formalities of getting starting are behind us. And you start eating with people and dining. And the, 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 all the precautions come down. And the curtains drop. And you're just yourself. Hey, man, you got something hanging on your cheek. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Because we're just normal people. And by then we were okay. We'd, we'd eaten it. We do have to pay for it. It's just we're out the door. Jesus says, as many as I love. Now, do you know the Greek words for love in the New Testament? There are three. Eros, physical love. Phileo, brotherly love. And agape, which is the love of God that loves unconditionally. Which word would you choose as is behind this Verse, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. How many vote agape? How many go for phileo? Who would put it down to eros? <laughs> Interestingly enough, the word is phileo. I was surprised by that myself. I thought this has definitely got to be agape, love. But Jesus, by using the word phileo, is saying this. I want to hang out with you. I like being your brother. I like doing things together. 
This isn't about, this isn't the moment where I say I want to love you with an unconditional love that takes you where you're at all the time at any state and just love over on you 100% from me to you. He's saying, I want to hang out. That's kind of maybe too basic. You know, the, the Philadelphia is one of the churches he wrote to. We have a city here in our country called Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Phileo Delphia, brotherly love. It's the city of brotherly love. That's where we get the name. Phileo Delphia, the love of the brothers. And so Jesus is saying, hey, let's get a cup of coffee. Hey, let's have a cup of tea. Let's hang out. Let's you and me be buddies. Let's be brothers. I see Jesus along the shores of the Lake of Galilee and, and uh, in, depicted in one of the videos that's been put out about the life of Jesus. And they're walking along as a group. And he's got his disciples. And he's talking in that point in the scriptures where he's kind of dissing Matthew the tax collector. He's going, you know, if you do this and you do this, then you're going to be worse than a tax collector. Well, he's got a tax collector on his team. Right? And so in this depiction of this movie, um, I want to borrow you, but I won't do it because I mess up your hair. But, but I, was, I was looking to pick on somebody real quick but Matthew is standing right next to him and Jesus is just being jovial he's saying you know a guy that's like that is worse than a tax collector and he reaches over and grabs Matthew by the head and just nuggies him you know, messes up his hair and in seconds the disciples and Jesus are dogpiled on the beach they're just wrestling it to the ground and they're laughing. And I go, now that's my Jesus. He's not the stern, robed, I'm after you kind of God. He's saying, I want to love you. I want to hang out with you. I want to tousle your hair and let you know how much I care. Hey, that rhymes. I didn't try to do that. Maybe I should be a rapper. <laughs> Get a little <clears throat> going. Jesus standing at the door and knocking actually offers us a theological paradox. What that means is, he's saying, I'm knocking, I'm sovereign, I'm all-powerful, but it's up to you to open the door. I can do anything, but there's personal responsibility on your part. There's human responsibility involved in our relationship. I can't override you. I've made it that way. But I will stand and knock. You and I have the intense privilege of whether or not we're going to let Jesus come in and hang out with us. With Christ on the inside, it's me and him at Edwards Mansion with our chairs kicked back and telling jokes and amusing the rest of the guests. We're probably annoying a few as well. But nonetheless, we're having a good time. And it's wonderful fellowship. It's this marvelous sharing of the grace of God. So how do I take my temperature? How do I know if I'm hot or cold or if I'm lukewarm? That's really the question that was on my heart when I came to this passage. I said, God, how do I know? Oh, I wish that there were a device that I could pull out like that thermometer and stick in my ear or stick under my tongue or, and have it go pop up and say, you're okay spiritually. Wouldn't that be a great tool? 
Like, hey, click. Where it goes, beep, beep, beep. I'm good. I'm okay. I'm 98.6 with God. How do I take my temperature? In this book of Revelation, in chapter 2 and 3 is where these letters are written to the churches. I find it particularly interesting that there are seven churches that he wrote to. If you read the Bible, you know the Bible a little bit. Seven is the number of what? Perfection. And so what that indicates to me is that Jesus could have written these letters to 50 churches or to three. But he's written to seven. It's recorded for us for seven. And so by that we could interpret theologically that he's saying, this is, I'm writing to the church of all time. I'm writing perfectly just the right number of letters that will cover any church in any culture in any generation. I'm, I'm going to span the ages now with these letters. I'm writing to specific churches. True. That's historically accurate. They existed. But the things I will write to them about are the things that the church will face for all of time. And so they come to us as a present day exhortation. And listen to the things that are keynotes in each of the seven churches in these two chapters. The recurring dangers of losing your first love, of being afraid of suffering, doctrinal defection, spiritual deadness, no, not holding fast, and then the one we're looking at today, lukewarmness. Those were the things that he wrote to the seven churches about. These are the problems that exist in you. And those things, losing the first love, being afraid of suffering, doctrinal defection, moral departure, spiritual deadness, not holding fast, and lukewarmness are just as prevalent today as they were in the first century. It doesn't exist widespread. I'm not accusing the church of being absolutely infidels. Right? Lack of faith. We're pursuing God, but yet these are the same challenges that we will face. And a church is only made of individuals, correct? The Bible says he assembles us like living stones, puts us together and makes a habitation for himself to come and to dwell in and to receive praise from. That's why we get together like we do once a week or so in these uh, times of celebration so that collectively we become that house of worship and prayer. And he comes and hangs out with us. But these exhortations are to individuals that make up a church. You don't always have, if you've got a church that's lukewarm, it's because the leadership's lukewarm and the people are lukewarm. Not because the building's lukewarm, right? It's about people. So all of us have the opportunity to respond individually to the, to the be earnest and repent statement. We have the ability to say, God, where's that, where's that device that, that will tell me, am I okay? Poke it in me. Let me know. Can I be kind of base here in this? How often do you really get up in a year and say, you know what, I think I'll take my temperature today? You don't, do you? It's not like eat breakfast, take your temperature. Have a coffee, take it. You don't do it. Usually what? Someone else does it for you. Right? Peggy would do it for me. Because why? Because I'm laying on the couch whining. I feel so bad. I mean, as you hear, put baby, put this in your mouth. You find out what's wrong with you. I think there's an illustration to be had here that I don't always take my own temperature. I'm not the one that generally checks on my own health. When we live in community, cell groups, when we hang out with families together, friendships, 
It's oftentimes the other person that's sticking the thing in your mouth. Saying, you know, I've been noticing about you. You're a little off. (laughs) Now, I love you. Like Jesus says, I love you. I phileo you. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. I'm your friend. I'm your family member. I care about you. And maybe nobody else would tell you, but I'm going to tell you you're a little off. Your attitude's bad. You're living in sin, whatever it is. Somebody else has gotten the thermometer most of the time for us. We can use it our, ourselves. We can. How can I take my own temperature? What are the things I should look for in my life and walk with Christ that would indicate how well I'm doing or how poorly I'm doing? Well, if I go back through these, which I did, actually went through this just this morning, I thought, well, what, what were the indications that he was looking at in the seven churches? Ephesus, he says, I know your works. You have labor and for my name's sake. You have patience. You hate evil. You're persevering. And you, you still have your first love to deal with. Those are all positive things. Those were indicators of good health. To the church in Smyrna, he says, you, you have tribulation and you have utter poverty. And these things, you are even bearing, you're bearing up under those. You're doing good. To the Pergamos church, he said, you're holding fast to Jesus and your open confession of faith. You're not afraid to tell people you love me. And you're holding on to good doctrine. To Thyatira, he said, your works are good. Your love is good. Your service is good. Your faith and your patience are all prevailing in the church. Those are good markers of health. To Sardis, he said, you've only, you've only got a few walking in righteousness. In fact, this was known, Sardis was known as the dead church. And when you read the letter to the dead church, there's not many happy thoughts. Okay? He says, basically, there's nothing to do but to rebuke you. You're dead. There's no life there. You've got a few that are walking in righteousness. And he focuses in on them says, those guys are doing okay. The rest of the church is dead. The church of Philadelphia, you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. And you are persevering. You're holding on to the end. And then we get to this Laodicean church. And I don't find anything in here that's healthy. And others... Commentators have said that the way that these were written, that Laodicea would be the indication of the church in the last days. It would become lukewarm, self-sufficient, self-righteous. Not the world, the church. That we would begin to say about ourselves, we're rich, we're wealthy, we don't need anything. And I see the church, what we've known as the church globally. You know, it's in the news every day. Some churches in the news. Just this week, the Catholic church is in the news right the pope is inviting who he's inviting all the anglicans to come back because they're having troubles in the anglican church you know they're ordaining uh, gay people and they're not practicing strong doctrine and they're failing and they're splitting the church and the pope's reaching out saying y'all come home i mean the church is not doing well globally when you look at the one that's in the news but when you travel town to town and you come into places like Big Bear Christian Center or the little Douglas Avenue Methodist Church in Springfield, Illinois or little places where people like you and I gather and we are pursuing Jesus, the church is doing just fine. It's really on fire for Jesus. There's a passionate love for God but it's kind of not being in the news. They're picking on the church globally that has started to show us the appeal and the directives that are in this letter to the Laodiceans has become lukewarm, not hot, no cold, and it's nauseating to Jesus. 
Well, things that I'm taking away from this today is that I need to be eager. I need to be zealous. I need to be kind of on fire in my point of agreement with God. When he puts his finger on me or he convicts me by his Holy Spirit, I shouldn't try and talk him out of it. I should begin to rush in and agree with him and say, you're right and I'm wrong. Even though I want to fight about it, I can't be more right than you. It's just not possible. You're God and I'm not. So help me to agree with you about my condition. And then help me receive from you what I need to get me out of my condition. Help me live in grace and under your mercy. Give me a listening ear. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Give me a hearing ear. Help me to hear you knocking. And when you knock, I will open the door. Because I want to hang out with you too. You have favorite things you like to do? You know, some of us like to get our coffee or our tea and go sit by the lake. I mean, this would be a great day to do some of that because it's kind of chilly and the wind's blowing, the leaves are falling out of the tree. It's just kind of fun. Wouldn't it be more fun if Jesus was with you? Saying, come on, let's go hang out by the lake. Let's just sit around. I'm not going to try and produce anything. I'm not going to grunt my spirituality to the top. I'm just going to be me and you be you. And I'm going to be a better person for having hung out with you today. A real relationship. Come on in and let's eat together. I am going to hear the counsel to buy gold tried in the fire. I need true riches. I need a purified life. I need the reality of spirituality. I need a righteousness that's not my own. I need to be clothed in white that comes from Him. And this issue of anointing my eyes to see, I want to present my eyes to Him and say, I think you're the only one that can do the anointing. I can't anoint myself. So, But by invitation, I would say, would you anoint my eyes so that I can see? Would you anoint my eyes so that my heart can see? And I will never discount that God will put people around me who will hold the thermometer in my mouth when I'm not doing well. Because I don't think any of us can do all of this by ourselves. We're not built for it. The Bible says we need each other. There are so many one another scriptures in the New Testament that it's impossible to live out your Christian life on your own. You need somebody else. And it's got to be somebody you trust that when you see them coming with the thermometer, you're not going to run. I mean, just stand there with your mouth hanging open and let them put it in. Father, this morning I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word comes to us and brings life, the scriptures teach us, to our whole body. Lord, I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be on fire. Lord, it even says that cold is okay, but it must only be for some sort of refreshing that could become part of that. But I tend to think that being hot would be better. (coughs) Being lit up, being on fire for you, being passionate in my love relationship with you and the people that you put into my life. So I pray that you'll help me this week to truly hear and to respond. And I pray for my friends here this morning and those that aren't with us that will listen on the recording, God, that you will give them your grace to be able to repent quickly, to find the victory that comes from your mercies that are new every morning, to find the grace applied that gives us a victory. Lord, when we wrestle our best to hold these sins of ours to the ground, 
inspire us to cry out to you and the power of the Holy Spirit to come and crush them so that we can be free to live for you. Lord, we know we're in the world. We're not of it. Help us to use your standards of evaluation and not our own. Convict us if we have become complacent. Confront us if we are those who are saying we've become rich and we don't need anything. But Father, whatever you do, don't leave us to ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's sure good to be home. And uh, for, all of you light- <laughs> for all of you Lighthouse Keepers, uh, we're going to have lunch here with the Lighthouse Keepers. Hopefully you brought your lunch, your little sack lunch. You're going to grab it and come back. But let's, uh, let's get started at 1130, okay? Between now and then, you can just hug people and love people and pray with people and have a good time. <laughs>